Hey listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com slash xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode. I just want to give a brief shout out to all of our new and wonderful patrons who've been supporting us on Patreon. Melissa G, who's someone I've got to know through the MW program, Jonathan S, a local friend in San Francisco, Rebecca W, a very well-known winemaker up in Napa, Joe R, who's someone I've got to know in over Instagram, and Bill M, also in the MW program. I appreciate all of you supporting the show. We greatly appreciate it, and we're going to keep churning out great content. Thank you so much. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Jason Haas, second generation proprietor of Topless Creek Vineyard. Jason, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks. Pleasure to be here. We want to focus this conversation around the move to regenerative farming and obviously following your feed on Topless Creek on Instagram and seeing all the care that you guys do and all the the breakdowns you guys are doing about what you're doing in the vineyards. We wanted to get you on the show to really talk about like what is the business impact of making this change. And so we want to dive into that. But before we do, we kind of want to get your background and establish where and what is Topless Creek for those that may not know Topless Creek. Right. So yeah, so there's a lot of backstory to Topless Creek. Um, we are one of the pioneers of the California Rhone movement. Um, we're in Paso Robles, California. And we are co-founded by two families, still run equally by those two families. One of them is my family. My dad was Robert Haas. He founded the importing company Vineyard Brands, was a wine importer for 60 plus years. The other family is the Perrin family from Chateau de Bocastel and Famille Perrin and La Vie Ferme and Miraval and all of the things that they're doing in the Rhone Valley. My dad started working with them in the late 1960s, representing Bocastel and eventually the rest of their collection of wines in America, and became close friends with the two brothers who've run the estate since the mid-70s, that's Jean-Pierre and Francois Perrin. And in that era, they were making three or four trips a year to different parts of the United States, introducing Americans, not just to Bocastel, but Chateau Nifty Pop and the Rhone Valley more generally. California was an important part of those trips because it's a, it's a huge wine market, but also of interest to both my dad and the Perrins, because that was an era where he was representing some of the first generation of Napa and Sonoma wineries to hit the national scene. So in the 70s, he represented wineries like Kistler and Phelps and Chapelet and Spring Mountain and Ridge. In the 80s, he helped launch Sonoma Coutre. And so whenever he had the Perrins with him in the Bay Area, they'd take an afternoon, drive up to wine country, and visit a winery or two, taste some wines, and talk about what they found. What they mostly decided was, like, first of all, California was a place where you could make world-class wines. Kind of a radical idea for a French winemaking family in the, in the 70s and 80s. But equally convinced that there was this huge missed opportunity there and that nobody was planting Grenache in this Mediterranean climate. And so they started talking as early as the, the mid-1970s of someday doing a Rhone project together themselves in California. But it took them a decade to get the money saved up and the help of their other businesses 
But in 85, they put together the partnership with the families as equal partners and started looking. And it was sort of to their surprise as much as anybody else's that they ended up settling in Paso Robles. Because if you'd asked them in 1985 where they thought they were going to end up, they would have told you Sonoma. But they realized that Paso has these calcareous soils that are rare in California. That's what's underneath those rounded galets in Chateau Nifty Pop. It has a great climate, long growing season, cold nights. And if you're in the western fringes of the ABA where we are, it also has enough rainfall to dry farm. And those are kind of the three things that we were looking for. So we brought in cuttings of all of the principal Rhone varieties from Bocastel, started a grapevine nursery, started propagating vines, got vines in the ground in 94 and had our first vintage in 97. So we've been here ever since, uh, focused on Rhones and in all of their different colors and aspects. So we do Rhone blends, red, white, and, and pink. We do varietal bottlings. We've continued to bring in some of the obscure Rhone varieties. So things like Gardin and Muscardin and Vaccarez and Terry Noir, those have all made recent appearances here for the first time. And then tried to not just spread the word about Tablas Creek, but spread the word about the category that we're a part of and the place that we're a part of. So that's the quick thumbnail sketch of how we got to be doing what we're doing and, and who we are. And when did you yourself get involved as a second generation? So I moved out in 2002, so it's been two decades out here, I've been running a tech company in DC. My first, I got recruited to do that out of grad school. It was a, a company that taught web programming languages, and I'd always been comfortable with computers. I'd volunteered to build the website for the archaeological dig I was working on when I was in grad school. I have a master's degree in archaeology. And in 1998, that qualified me for a job at a tech company. So I've been doing that for four years. And I'd sort of gone as far as I was going to go in that company. And Tablas Creek had grown from being a project into being a business that really needed somebody to run it. My dad at that point was already in his mid-70s. I knew I wanted to work with him. I didn't want to, to go and find something else and then realize five years later, like I'd missed my chance. So as it turned out, I got lucky. He made it to almost 91. I got to work with him for 15 years. But I moved out in 02 to focus initially on our marketing which basically didn't exist in 2002, and try to turn this interesting project into a business that worked. So I worked really closely with my dad at first, and then as he kind of stepped away and retired starting I don't know, roughly 10 years ago, took over running the, the operations more generally. And yeah, we've heard, I think, from Damian Wilson, Sonoma State, how responsive you are with social media and how that's a rarity in the wine world these days. Well, I mean, I do find myself looking back on a lot of the tech stuff that I learned. This was obviously in an era before social media, but just the idea of responsiveness or or information architecture, knowing how to provide your information in a way that people can get it and find it useful. Like I think about that stuff all the time. And this is like the other side of the business, yet probably related in how you communicate. But the notion of farming and regenerative farming is a relatively new term to me. I think I've started to hear about it in the last couple of years. Maybe you could help for our listeners define what is regenerative farming and how does it differ from biodynamic, organic, or conventional farming? Sure. So I'll sort of take you along our journey because we've had to figure all of that out. We started out farming organically, which we inherited from what they do at Bocastel. They've been farming organically since the 1950s out of this conviction that that's the only way to really express your terroir. You stop putting chemicals on from the outside. You stop encouraging the roots to sit at the surface and wait for you to nourish them. And instead, what happens is the roots get down deep into the bedrock. They find what they need. They become more resilient. That's sort of what the foundation is of, I think, 
both organic and biodynamic farming in wine. That's the appeal is that you're thinking of this as kind of a, a terroir magnifier, or at least you're, you're giving your vines every chance that they could possibly have to express the character of the place in which you are. So we, we started out farming organically, but if you think of organics, I think it can be best understood as essentially like a list of things you can't do. So it basically means you can't use chemicals for fertilization, for pest control, or for weed control. And so functionally, the practice of organics often involves replacing chemical inputs with non-chemical inputs. So you're not, you're not using chemical fertilizer, you're using organic fertilizer. You're not using chemical pesticide, you're instead spraying with oils or with soaps or something that is a more natural product. And this is good. This is something to be encouraged and praised. But the more we thought about this from the, through the lens of how do we show off our terroir as clearly as we can, we realized that replacing chemical inputs with non-chemical inputs was definitely second best to creating an ecosystem where we didn't need to add inputs at all. That essentially brought us to biodynamics. So focusing on soil health, focusing on biodiversity, we, we brought in a flock of sheep to turn our own cover crops into our own manure, which meant that we didn't have to bring in fertilizer from the outside. We planted several hundred fruit trees in and amongst the vines. We started our own beehives. We built 43 owl boxes to control gophers naturally. So the idea was like, rather than intervene, can we build an ecosystem that's in balance that will control the things that we don't want? That's very close to what regenerative agriculture is, except that regenerative agriculture thinks much more consciously about externalities of the choices that you make. So think, for example, of somebody who is farming rice in an arid climate using a ton of water. I think we would generally agree that that's not a great use of societal resources. The externalities of that may be negative, but if you aren't using chemicals, you can still call your product organic or even biodynamic. Regenerative farming takes the soil health focus of biodynamics and then adds to that commitments to reducing your use of shared resources like non-renewable energy or water. We are, at Tablas Creek, we're 100% solar powered. We've reduced the amount of water that we use by 80% over the last 15 years. It also has an additional focus on kind of the big picture societal challenges like climate change, where you're supposed to use your farm to help mitigate these larger issues. So one of the things you have to do for our regenerative organic certification is show that your practices are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and increasing the carbon content of your soil. And it's different than biodynamics. I mean, the, the process by which you do this is similar to biodynamics, but biodynamics is process-based, whereas the regenerative organic certification is results-based. So you're doing these things and having to measure the results, not just say that you're doing those things. I mean, then finally, there's two additional pillars to the regenerative organic piece. One of them is an animal welfare certification. You have to show that any working animals on your farm are treated humanely. And then finally, there's a farm worker fairness piece where you have to be audited and show that not only are you paying your farm workers a living wage, not only are their working conditions safe, but you're also soliciting their feedback and acting on their feedback and giving them new skills, building their conflict resolution skills and their problem solving skills. And the idea is that your farm unit becomes a vehicle for positive impacts on your soil, on your community and on your region. And so does the regenerative body actually measure the skills you're giving your farm workers? They do. You have to have a farm worker audit. 
So basically, we had a group called the Equitable Farm Initiative come in and do a training series with our vineyard crew. It's basically communication skills designed to break down some of the communication barriers that are just inherent in a lot of those relationships. We instituted weekly roundtable meetings with our vineyard crew. It's what we do every Friday, the way that we start the day, talk about what we've done the last week, talk about what we're going to be doing the next week actively encourage suggestions and feedback. So yeah, it's a piece. You basically have to get a series of different audits for the regenerative organic piece. You have to get a soil health audit. You have to get a, a an animal welfare audit and you have to get that farm worker fairness audit. And then there's the reporting pieces that you have to do by sending soil samples off to labs and show that you're getting that carbon content in your soil and reports on your energy use and your water use and things like that that are part of the umbrella that are run by the Regenerative Organic Alliance. And is it the right way to think about it in that organics would be the biggest category and then biodynamics is a subset of that and regenerative a subset of that even? Yeah, though I would say that if you are farming regeneratively, you are farming organically for sure. But you're not necessarily farming biodynamically. There's a whole, I mean, biodynamics has a soil health piece that is the basis of most of the regenerative farming canon. But there's a bunch of other stuff in biodynamics that I think in some cases even obscures the soil health pieces for, at least in public consciousness. A lot of people talk about like burying cow horns and harvesting by harvesting and pruning by cycles of the moon. And those things are not things that the regenerative farming bodies care about. So it happens, I think, that most of the people who've gotten their regenerative certification so far have been farming biodynamically because it means that they've handled the biodynamic, uh, really the soil health piece. And that makes it a lot easier to do that last bit of certification. But I think ultimately it provides an alternative to biodynamics for people who would like to focus on the more scientific pieces and less on the kind of mysticism pieces of that particular philosophy. Yeah, I'm curious on the move because I struggle when we when I visit vineyards and with the organics great, biodynamic. I love the fact that people spend so much more time in their vineyard. Um, there's a direct correlation in my mind in terms of time in vineyard with the quality of those wines and that land. But people telling me that the moon has a pull on the on these things, I'm like, well, my blood pressure would go up then when it's a full moon. And it's like I just I struggle with some of the science. And and there's people who believe it, and I'm just I'm struggle with that. But is part of that move for you? in that results-driven approach that you're getting with regenerative agriculture, was part of that that you just weren't, like you were like, this is the only dogma that we kind of like knew that was working for us. And it was part of that move for you. Hey, I need something that's actually a little bit more tangible and things I can grok that actually science can prove. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that we have been, even though we've had a biodynamic certification for seven years now, and we're planning to continue it, I think it's fair to say that we're pretty skeptical about big chunks of the biodynamic canon in that the, the, the lunar cycle piece for sure. And then there's the addition of the, the preps, the biodynamic micronutrients, which I think in many cases they work, but not for the reasons that the canon says that they work. And what you mentioned, the fact that it does mean that you just need to be in your vineyard more and paying attention to what's going on there. I think that is a big piece of it. But I definitely feel like having a farming system which steps away from some of those more mystical elements towards things that are more measurable is something which fits more naturally with our own philosophy. And I think critically also makes it easier for a broader swath of the American and and worldwide farming community to accept and adopt. And I mean, all of this regenerative farming piece, it's only really valuable to the extent to which it's adopted broadly. I mean, we are 
whatever, we own 270 acres and, and 125 of those are planted to grapes. Uh, that is a tiny fraction of what's in Paso Robles, let alone what's in California or America or the world. And regenerative farming has the potential to really transform a lot of the the relationship that we have with food production and the land, but we're not going to do it on 270 acres. It has to be has to be adopted broadly in order for it to move the needle. And it could be that the biodynamic practices, including the lunar cycles, might have an impact on the the objectives you're trying to achieve with regenerative farming. Is it have you done any tests to see if that's actually the case? It's a super hard thing to do tests on. I mean, yeah, you can harvest based on lunar cycle, but if you wait a couple of days longer, like you, you're changing other things. It's not just that the lunar cycle is different. It's three days longer for the grapevines to have in the sun, in the maturity, in the maturation process. So we haven't done kind of controlled experiments trying to eliminate one piece or another of the biodynamic canon. We're going to make the decisions that we think best within the broader context of, of what's going on in the vineyard. And we've gotten the, the green light from the biodynamic certifier to just ignore the whole calendaring piece of it. And they, they came before we got the biodynamic certification, we invited the certifier down basically to find out how much they were going to insist on us doing things that we weren't really comfortable with. And after a couple of hours driving around, looking at what we were doing in the vineyard, looking at all of this, these regenerative farming pieces, they said, you know, honestly, if you want to ignore that whole piece of it, that's fine. Like you're doing the stuff that we think really matters and you're doing it to a degree that we really want you inside the biodynamic world because we want to bring other people here and show them how they could be thinking about this. So we just took that as a green light to go ahead and ignore the pieces that we didn't really believe made a difference anyway. So what are the key benefits you think are for each of the types of farming, including conventional? Like I presume there's some like cost or efficiency benefits, but you mentioned soil health. What are the other types of benefits for each type of farming? Right. So uh, we've never farmed conventionally, so I, I don't have a lot of experience in that. We started with organics. So I think most people would argue that at least in the short term, conventional farming is the cheapest. I mean, you, you just add the things that you need, you buy them, the chemicals are generally widely available, easy to use. You don't need to worry about the broader ecosystem, you just do it. But in the long run, I've read several pretty convincing studies that suggest at least in the world of wine, um, organic is not any more expensive than conventional farming because it, there's some transition costs. But ultimately, I mean, you still have to pay for all of those chemicals. And if you can figure out a way to make a lot of those interventions unnecessary or use more natural products, um, it ends up being very similar in terms of cost. So it's not like the grocery store where the organic apple is not more expensive than the non-organic apple, because that's how I would naturally assume that the, if you're using things in the vineyard, like you said, you're switching out the non-organic for the organic, that there would be a premium with that product. Well, I, I guess I don't, I can't speak for other products. I am sure that there are other products for which the non-chemical alternatives are more expensive or more labor intensive than the chemical alternatives. And I, I think one of the differences in one of the clearest differences in the world of wine is that if you are not using Roundup or some other sort of pre-emergent herbicide, you have to spend more time with your, your farming. You have to send your tractors through to do more tillage to get the weeds out. And that labor, that's fuel. That's But at the same time, in the long run, your soils are probably going to, going to benefit and give you longer-lived grapevines and healthier microbiome underneath the soil. So I, again, I think there's short-term versus long-term costs. And I think 
to some extent, the reason that like an organic apple costs more than the non-organic apple is because people feel like it should. You feel like you're getting something which is a premium product, and therefore that is signified by the price that people charge on it. I mean, a lot of, lots of times you end up with these sorts of discussions when people ask like, why one wine costs more than another wine? Well, like you're signaling something as a winery by putting something at one price versus another price. It's interesting to note, though, that in general, wines that bear the organic seal in America are not premium wines. They tend to be in that like middle ten to fifteen dollar price range because they're aimed more at the organic market than they are at the fine wine market. So I'm not sure that that holds true in the world of wine. It's obviously there's tons of people who are farming organically and biodynamically who are making some of the greatest wines in the world. But the thing, if you're looking just at that USDA organic seal on a wine bottle, you're getting tangled up with other things like are you using sulfur or not in the fermentation process and who is your target audience. Yeah, and it's pretty different in Europe with the green leaf because it has different standards than the USDA labeling. That's a rabbit hole. What about the benefits for biodynamic and regenerative farming? It's interesting. We figured that the benefits from moving towards biodynamics would likely be long-term benefits. They would be giving our grapevines a slightly less stressful life in a place which is really pretty stressful. I mean, it is hot and cold in Paso Robles. It's very dry in the summer. We have a few feet of topsoil over this like intensely calcareous subsoil. This is a hard life for grapevines. And so a lot of our neighbors replant at age 20 or 25 because the vines are just exhausted at that point. And we thought that if we were able to build up our soils, increase the carbon content, and therefore the water holding capacity of our soils, get more organic matter in the soil, that we would give the grapevines an easier life and maybe we wouldn't have to replant until they were 40 or 50 years old, and that the quality benefit would come because we'd have a higher percentage of older older vines in our vineyard. So it was a surprise when that first year that we decided to farm a 20-acre slice of the vineyard biodynamically, which was back in 2010, that the lots that came from that 20-acre slice floated to the top of our blind tastings when we got to blending in the spring. We sort of chalked that up as interesting, but not particularly conclusive, but the same thing happened again in 2011. And at that point, we decided we don't know exactly what it is about the changes that we've made that's making an impact here, but like we'd be silly to ignore it. And we doubled the acreage that we were farming biodynamically between 2011 and 2012 to 40 acres. And eventually, we're farming the whole property biodynamically by 2015. And I don't feel like it's a coincidence that we feel like we're on the best run of quality that we've ever seen off of our estate since 2016. I think the fact that we're farming the whole vineyard biodynamically, the wines have intensity and richness, but they also have this freshness and vibrancy that I feel like we didn't have necessarily in older eras of what what we were doing. And some of it's obviously vine age, but the vines don't get to that age unless they can. So I think there are benefits we found in the expressiveness of the grapes through biodynamic farming. And honestly, I don't feel like the difference between biodynamic and regenerative is particularly showing in the grapes. It's those externalities that we're talking about. It's showing in the commitment of our crew. Once we did the regenerative organic training, we realized that our vineyard crew, in many cases, they'd been here for a decade or two decades even. Like they, were, they started bringing their families out on weekends to show them the things that we were working on. Like, is that a tangible difference in the work that they're doing? Not that in and of itself, but I'm sure it shows through. 
Or another example is we realized all of a sudden we were paying a lot less for equipment repairs because instead of the vineyard crew worried that like they'd get blamed for something so they would just use it, duct tape it back together until it was broken to the point that it needed to be replaced. Instead, we were getting regular feedback on, oh, we, we need to look at this particular tractor because it sounds funny or this particular piece of it uh, looks like it might fail soon. Also, that's kind of communication pieces business pieces are, I think, some of the benefits of the regenerative farming piece. But in terms of the biodynamic soil health pieces, we found like our cover crops are deeper and richer. The the organic content of our soil is higher, which means it holds more water, which means that we can withstand droughts better, which means that the grapevines live longer. And it, it feels like this positive feedback loop where richer soils give us healthier vines, give us longer lived vines, give us more interesting fruit. So how long before you converted everything? A lot of people, when they think about someone making the move to biodynamic, they seem like go all in. But like this is your livelihood, right? Any any domain I've ever talked to, they basically talk about, hey, I ran a pilot. It worked. I compared it just like what you said. And then, and then they started like replicating it as they saw the results. So I'm curious on how quickly did you switch everything over? Was that like a five-year journey? So we started with that 20-acre slice at the western edge of the property in 2010. And we were farming the whole vineyard biodynamically by 2015. So, so yeah, it was a five-year journey. And then the same question for to regenerative, like what was that transition like in terms of duration? That was something that we did for the whole property because a lot of it is really business. Yeah, I mean, it's business practices. There weren't big differences in the farming that we had to do. It was, it was interesting because we were, we were asked to be a part of the pilot program for the regenerative organic certification because we were already doing most of the farming stuff. And we already had a flock of sheep here on the property. And we'd already made the commitment 25 years ago to give our field crew year-round employment. And like all of these things that they believe in, we were already doing. And it, that's not to say we didn't have to make some changes. We did. But we were already most of the way there. And they really wanted our input on how these broader regenerative organic pillars and protocols could be applied in the best possible way to wine. So we were a part of this pilot program along with somebody who was farming livestock, along with somebody else who was farming chocolate, somebody else who was doing aquaculture, somebody else who was doing row crops, somebody else who was doing orchards. I mean, it was the idea in this pilot program was that they were building out these central core standards to specifics that applied to as wide a range of agricultural crops as possible. So it wasn't like we were having to change big pieces of the farming that we were doing, we were having to keep better records and measure things better and implement some of the farm worker training pieces that we hadn't done before. But as far as the farming was going, we were chosen to be a part of this pilot because we were already doing the stuff that they thought was was really critical. I am curious in terms of the consumer facing as you move from organic to biodynamic to regenerative. You obviously talked about the difference in the quality of wine from organic to biodynamic, and you said it was the same for regenerative. But I'm curious in terms of like what that has enabled you to do in terms of delivering a more pure product that is maybe better for the consumer. Has that been a consideration? Is it allowed to use less sulfur, less other things like that? Or is, there, or is it just a better wine? I think it's, in terms of the product, I think it's a question of grape quality and vine health more than it's a question of product purity. I mean, the, the winemaking pieces that we were doing, they already qualified under the international organic standard under 100 parts per million of sulfur. We weren't using any additives other than a little bit of tartaric acid anyway. We were using all native yeasts. We were, we were already doing these things from the beginning. So I think the main difference is that because we used and use that low amount, but uh, added 
sulfur in the winemaking, we were prohibited from using the USDA organic seal. Because we do sometimes need to add acid in Paso Robles, we're prohibited from using the biodynamic seal. So the regenerative organic seems for us to solve both of those issues. As long as we're under that international organic standard of, of sulfur, we qualify on that winemaking piece. There's nothing in there about adding acid or not adding acid the way that there is in biodynamics. So we can put the regenerative organic certified seal on our label in a way that we couldn't reliably do with either the national organic program organic seal or the biodynamic seal. So it allows us, I think, just to communicate at a glance more clearly what it is we're doing and what we care about than we were able to before. In terms of communications around that piece, though, you have to now educate a consumer group of what does that mean, though? That, that seems like yep. a major challenge. Is some of the group trying to address that? Yes. And again, this is all still new, new, very new days. We had a conference call yesterday among the six regenerative organic certified wineries to talk about how we were going to start to spread the word about why we felt like this mattered. Again, it's early, early days. But there are a couple of things that I think we have in our going in our favor. One is that regenerative organic includes the word organic which has this inherent meaning for people already. We're not starting from scratch the way that you might with something like biodynamic, where even though it's been used and talked about for a century, most people don't have the first clue what it means. Organic is a little more intuitive. And then regenerative is, and it wasn't a, a term that we were thinking about more than a few years ago either. I mean, Peter was Peter mentioned that like it had just come across his radar. We're the same thing. Like We got invited to be a part of the pilot program for the regenerative organic certification. And our first question was, what's regenerative? It wasn't a term that we knew, but I think more and more it is becoming and will very fast become a, a really critical piece of how people talk about responsible farming um, going forward. So I don't think we're going to be working at this on our own. Yes, we're going to have to do a lot of consumer education. Yes, you mentioned at the beginning, like watching our social media feed or our blog or the emails that we send out to our mailing list. I mean, we spend a ton of time talking about this because we think it's important. We think it's something that people will connect to and do connect to. And it's it, it's an investment in time and education that we think is is absolutely worth making. But yeah, we have to do it. But it's totally in keeping with the kinds of communication that we would want to do anyway. So going from the benefits to the cost side of the equation, what are the cost differences of each of these types of systems from organic to biodynamic to regenerative? So there's basically more hands-on labor in biodynamic and regenerative than there is in either organic or certainly conventional. Uh, we have a, a flock of, at the moment, 350 sheep that roam the vineyard and are a big piece of those, of both the biodynamic and regenerative work that we do. They don't manage themselves. I mean, we had to hire a shepherd a few years ago because the, like, the challenge of organizing this flock, like once it got to above about 50 sheep, it wasn't anybody's part-time job. So somebody who could design a rotational grazing plan to make sure that the sheep actually went to all of the different blocks on a reasonable schedule. They didn't overgraze anything. We had plans for what we were going to do with them in the summer when they couldn't be in the vineyard. So it requires people to manage these processes and they're, they're processes which tend to be more hands-on than what you would see in organic or, or certainly conventional farming. But Again, you're you're saving a certain amount on the other end of not having to buy all of these chemicals. I would rather spend time on the labor to build a, an enormous composting program, which we have done, than I would to buy fertilizer from the outside. So it is more expensive, but it's not cripplingly expensive. I mean, if you think of how expensive our, our wines are, I mean, our estate wines sell for between 30 and 
$65. We're not talking hundreds of dollars. So I'm skeptical of the argument that at the premium range that this sort of farming is too expensive. It's not. It is more expensive than just spraying Roundup under the rows and having a couple of quads that go through and spray with whatever pesticide you need to use at different times a year and and then picking mechanically. Of course it is. Like, Could you do this for a $7.99 bottle of wine? Probably not. But there are plenty of vineyards for which this would work just fine. And we know already that it's possible to farm organically for just similar or just a little bit more money than it is to farm conventionally. You look at, like now you go to Trader Joe's, you can find the Charles Shaw organic wine that's instead of $2.99, it's $3.99 or it's $3.49. I mean, it's it's a few cents more per bottle. It's not prohibitive. And yes, there's there are expenses involved with farming regeneratively, but I don't think they're going to be prohibitive for most people. A lot of people with farming will use like a dollar per acre benchmark for how much it costs to farm. What's the sort of differences between the different levels in your experience? I don't have those numbers to hand. I mean, I know roughly what it costs us per ton of grapes that we pick, but that's, that's again, that's not broken out by which processes we're using, how much of it is labor. We know that it costs us something like I mean, it depends on the productivity of the year, but something between three and $5,000 a ton to farm our own grapes on our own property. That's more than a lot of places. But again, it's not wildly different than what it cost us a dozen years ago before we were farming biodynamically per ton. So it's, and a lot of that is driven by increases in, in salaries and materials costs, which everybody has faced over the last decade. And part of that, as you mentioned, depends on yields. And some people have noted that biodynamic farming actually reduces their yield. Is that true in your experience? It's so hard to tease out the different pieces that are involved. No, I would not say that biodynamic farming has reduced our yield. But again, you think of where we were coming from. It's not like we were pumping these plants full of water and fertilizer to try to get a ton of yield beforehand. It mostly depends on how much water we get, not what sort of farming we're doing. If we get a nice wet winter and it doesn't freeze we get three and a half tons an acre off the property. Or if we have dry winter, maybe it's two and a half or three tons an acre. If we get a frost, maybe it's two tons an acre. But that's been reasonably consistent since the early 2000s. It's not something which has changed in a significant way since we started farming biodynamically. And you mentioned that you need more labor to do biodynamic and regenerative viticulture. With labor shortages happening everywhere, how does that impact your ability to use some automation or other things to ameliorate some of the labor shortages? So we have not gone very far down the road of automation. We feel like that and a hands-on piece of what we do is really critical. And something that we've done for a long time is, for example, pick in multiple passes through each block. So you think of the automated options that are out there. You want to have a mechanical harvester and then an optical sorter that might just pick the berries that are the ideal color and density to continue in the fermentation process. With Rhone varieties and their inherently uneven ripening, you could do that, but you'd probably lose 20 or 30% of your crop. We've always preferred to go through in three passes and pick the earliest ripening clusters then go back a week or 10 days later, do a main pick, go back a week or 10 days later if we need to and do a third pick. And that's more of just us wanting to use our vineyard efficiently than it is a dislike of automation. But We've been able to largely avoid a lot of the labor issues by committing to giving our crew year-round employment. And that's a 
been a huge piece. There's a lot of years where we don't need to bring on any supplemental crew at any point during the year because we have a core field crew of 10 who know that they're going to be here every day. And in many cases, have been here for two decades. We did that back in 1996 was when we first hired our full-time crew. Four of the 10 guys who we hired in 1996 are still here at Tablas Creek 25 years later. So that's been a big piece of it. The The commitment to paying a living wage and good working conditions has meant that we've been able to get good crew when we've needed to supplement the main crew that we have here year round. Um, I mean, has it been an occasional issue when we've like there was a big heat spike during harvest in 2000 and everybody's grapes were all needed to get off the vine at the same time? Yeah, we would have loved to have gotten a second crew and we were like everybody else struggling, competing with everybody else against that second crew. But at least we had one crew here. So I think we've been able to leverage the way that we work with our full time crew to sidestep some of those bigger issues. I am curious on some of the trend in terms of consumer trends, really inquiring about their products, especially with younger demographics. It seems like you guys are on that trend and on the early stage of that trend in terms of adopting these things. Is that part of that awareness, part of the move is that you saw that your consumers were asking about this and curious about this area? I know you guys were already doing a lot of this stuff already, but I'm curious on why the move to it and, and is some of it based on what you're hearing from your consumers? So I would say, no, that's not why we did it, but it's certainly been a positive outcome of it. I mean, it was very much driven by just our own beliefs that each change that we made, a way of making better wines, a way of having better soils, a way of supporting the vineyard or the people who work here better. But you're totally right. I mean, you look at the kinds of things that get the biggest response when we talk about them on social media or when we release them by email. It's uh, So many of them are things that talk directly to why somebody who has a choice of how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of wines out there like should feel good about the choice that they're making in buying Tablas Creek. And I do think that's powerful. And I think it's powerful, not just among everybody talks about it being a really critical thing for millennials, but I think it's honestly, I think it's something that everybody would like. Everybody would like to feel good that the dollars that they're spending on a what's clearly a, an optional purchase are going to someplace that is going to have positive impacts on the world, or at least have positive impacts on the community and the people that produce it. I think it's great and I think it's important, but it was not what drove us to, to do it. So bringing the, the benefits and the costs together, how do you think of the overall ROI or return on investment of regenerative farming? Well, how big do you want to look? How big picture do you want to look? My own belief is that if agriculture is not part of the solution to these big picture issues like resource scarcity and climate change, those problems are probably not solvable problems. I think in the long run, everybody is going to be, have to farm regeneratively. It is the only sustainable way to farm. In terms of the rewards and costs of being an early adopter of it, clearly we're continuing to do it. We, we feel like it's worth it. We feel like the impact on the quality of the wine and of the health of the vines and of the vineyard has been positive and, and noticeable. The opportunity to talk about these things with our customers has been valuable. The loyalty that we see from our fans has been, I think, stronger than it's ever been. So yes, it, I'm sure it costs more. We don't break it out that way because it's not like we're trying to make an economic decision about this. This is a decision about the right way to do things for us and who we are and the vineyard that we hope will be here in another hundred years. But 
I do think that there are plenty of plenty enough positive benefits to pay for that investment. And do you think wine is uniquely positioned to be leader, anchor tenant of regenerative farming, or are other crops equally as positioned? I think wine is an amazing vehicle for talking about this. I've talked about this a lot with Elizabeth Whitlow, who's the director of the Regenerative Organic Alliance. She's been really amazed to see the way that wineries in particular have communicated regenerative farming. And I I think it makes a ton of sense because we're used to talking to our customers directly, unlike, say, somebody who's growing cotton or somebody who's growing oysters or somebody who's growing livestock. I mean, they're generally not communicating directly with their end consumer the way that we are. We're also used to making the connection explicit between the choices that we make in our farming and the quality of the end product. I think that the whole concept of terroir allows wine to start conversations with their customers about farming questions in a way that's harder for other things. And it's a value-added product. So if we make something that we feel is better and we're able to communicate that to our customers and convince our customers of that, we can charge more for it. It's not We're not making a commodity that is exchangeable for some other farm in another state or country or even another town, we're making something which is branded Tablas Creek. And if we can reap the rewards for that, we can just by putting a higher price on something that we feel like offers more value. So I do think that there are a handful of reasons why wine is going to be a leader in this kind of communication. And it's not just wine. I mean, I think that somebody who, for example, is making cheese might have a similar sort of a story to tell or somebody who's making artisan cider. But it tends to be places where you have that kind of vertical integration of the production and the turning of that raw material into a value-added finished product that I think is going to be in the best position to talk about this. Great. Jason, to wrap up this episode, we wanted to end on a personal note. And what was the most memorable wine you've drank over the last year and who did you drink it with? Right. So I can't remember if I mentioned this earlier, but my dad died now three, a little more than three years ago. And we still go back every summer. My, I bring my, my wife and I bring our kids back to Vermont where I grew up and where my parents lived for 50 years. My mom's still there in the summer. And my sister lives in what used to be the old offices. It was originally the barn of the farmhouse that we grew up in. And then it became the offices of Vineyard Brands. And now my sister and her her husband converted it into artist studios and, and a place to live for them and their kids. So we go back every summer for a stretch. And we decided that one of the nights this summer, it wasn't that it was a particular anniversary or anything that we were celebrating, but we just decided to go down and look at the look at the collection of stuff that my dad accumulated over the years and just kind of pull out all the stops. And so we found a, a 61 Lafitte that was from the era where he was the exclusive American importer for Lafitte and Petra's. 61 was a vintage where the Bordeaux producers knew that they had made something extraordinary and raised their prices and their traditional buyers in the UK balked at the at the higher prices. And my dad ended up buying more than two thirds of the production from Lafitte in 1961 because he felt confident in its quality and his ability to sell it. So he still had a few of those bottles in that cellar in Vermont. And we opened that along with the couple of other great old wines that that he had collected and had it with lamb chops that we cooked on the grill and the first harvest of summer squash out of the garden and bread made from a local artisan bakery and just sort of used it as this impromptu celebration of his life and his vision and his foresight to 
be willing to take a, take a leap into, into things that he believed in. Um, and I, I feel like I get to live that on a daily basis, but that was a, a pretty remarkable encapsulation of sort of what inspires me about following in his footsteps. It's amazing how a bottle of wine can bring all of that detail and memory together around your father, around the food you ate that day and who you were with. And I appreciate you sharing that memory with us. Yeah, it was a memorable meal. It was, it was, it was, it was cool. Um, and I do feel like I get to benefit from a lot of his his vision and his great choices, and just try to use that as the as the the leaping off point. Not be not be satisfied with what we've done, but try to continue to push in directions that he would have been inspired by, and that feel consistent with the vision that he and the parents and the generations that came before us all had. Well, Jason, thank you for joining this episode. You're going to be back on another episode to talk about alternative packaging. So please stay tuned for that. And thank you for spending so much time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.